0: Chapter 7 of Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Macmillan. Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today by Haji A. Brown. Chapter 7 After the Battle Before leaving Cairo to meet and oppose the French advance, Murad Bey had arranged that a large chain was to be stretched as a boom across the river, and batteries erected upon the adjacent shore to play upon the enemy in the confusion he anticipated would arise from their meeting with this obstacle. It was not, however, until the news of the defeat of the Mamaluks at Chabris had thrown the capital into the utmost confusion, that any serious efforts were made to prepare the defences of the city. When that news came to the people, who had been looking forward to receiving tidings of the destruction of the French, then Ibrahim Bey and Bekir Pasha, filled with alarm at this first note of disaster, jointly called upon the whole population to take up arms, and hasten to the riverside for the defense of their homes and families. Weapons and ammunition were served out as long as they could be got to all comers, and when the supply of deadlier arms ran short, the deficiency was made good in intention, if not in fact, by the distribution of naboots, long staffs of hard wood, which the Egyptians of the lower classes are accustomed to use, much as our distant forebears used their quarter-staffs. Other impromptu weapons were provided by the people themselves, such as knives lashed to the end of long sticks, this primitive arm which could either be wielded as a lance, or thrown as a javelin, being destined at a later date to deprive the French of one of their ablest generals. Cairo was at that time separated from the river by an open stretch of ground now covered by the avenues lined by the villas and mansions that form the Khazr el-Aini and Ismaili quarters of the town. At the north end of this space was the small town of Bulak, which served as the port of the city then, as it still does. This was the spot chosen by Ibrahim Bey as the headquarters for the defence of the town. And here around the people were gathered, and quantities of stores and ammunition of every kind collected, whatever was needed or desired if not found in the magazines of the state being seized without ceremony wherever it could be got for several days the space between the two towns was covered with the crowds coming and going engaged in the transport of the various materials required and so great was the haste to finish the work and the desire to help it on that men of almost all degrees assisted in the task as it was impossible to find accommodation for everybody at bulak a large number of the people returned to their homes in the city to pass the night and gained well-earned repose but only to return at the first dawn of day. Unwanted and severe, as was the labor they had to undergo, all worked, not only willingly, but with the greatest enthusiasm, and with all the needless noise and tumult that is a never-failing part of any exertion the Egyptian worker is called upon to make. Not unnaturally the workers encouraged each other by vaunting cries of contempt and derision for the enemy they were expecting, and thus incurred the censure of the Egyptian historian Gabardy who condemn such conduct as lacking in the dignity that should distinguish the defence of Islam. The ulema, who like the druids of old, have always been exempt from military service and taxation, were like them not backward in encouraging others in their toil or in assisting in such ways and manners as befitted their character. Very properly, they busied themselves especially in prayer, and at all the stated hours of worship offered up fervent supplications to the deity for protection and victory and the children of all the schools being under their charge they gathered these and led them in processions reciting invocations suited to the occasion the dervishes or as they were often incorrectly termed the monks of islam who were in reality simply members of lay confraternities such as those of the catholic church also assembled themselves and paraded the streets flying their banners and accompanied by the weird arab music of pipes and drums that unwelcome to european ears has a strange fascination for the arab and egyptian and, like the Caillera or Marseillais in the streets of Paris, fills its hearers with a fierce longing for action and excitement, a wild craving to be up and doing they know not what, or why. Some of the wealthier citizens left the town to seek refuge in the neighbouring villages. Others simply sent their families and valuables away, and joined the gathering at Boulac, and the town being thus practically deserted, even the sheiks el hara petty officials appointed in all the quarters of the town to look after public order, being engaged at Boulak. The streets, which in ordinary times were swept and watered daily, were neglected, and business of every kind being of necessity at a standstill, the poorer classes, who lived from hand to mouth on their daily earnings, no longer finding any employment, were driven by sheer starvation to seek in robbery and crime a means of living. The Diwans having been broken up by the departure of Murad Bey, and others of the Mameluk chiefs. No regular council could be held, but Bekir Pasha, with some of the ulema and leading men who remained, held frequent consultations, and were in constant communication with Ibrahim Bey, who remained at Bulac day and night to supervise the work there, and along the river, by the side of which batteries were being erected for a distance of nearly three miles north of Bulac. Ibrahim Bey appears to the last to have preserved his confidence in the certainty of the Mamaluks proving victorious. But Bekir Pasha, when the news of the near approach of the French was received, decided in conjunction with some of the Ulema to make an attempt to treat with the enemy. With this object in view, they sent for a Monsieur Bandouf, who was regarded as the leader of the French colony, and begged him to tell them candidly what he thought was the object of the invasion. He, of course, was no better informed upon this point than they were themselves, but he could at least form an idea, and his reply was that he believed it most likely the French desired nothing more than a free passage through the country to enable them to proceed to India, and join their countrymen there in their struggle with the English. Accepting this as at least a possibly true explanation of the invasion, they proposed to Monsieur Bandouf that he should go as an envoy from them to Bonaparte, and assure him of their willingness to facilitate him in every way if such were his object. Not without some hesitation, occasioned by his fear that it would not be possible for him to reach the French camp in safety, Monsieur Banduf consented to do this, and was preparing to set out with an escort of the Mamaluks of Ibrahim Bey for his protection, when the reverberations of the cannon at Imbaba were heard, and they realized that it was too late for such an embassy as they had proposed. As soon as Ibrahim Bey heard the commencement of the battle, he began to take such steps as he could to forward assistance to Murad Bey but long before any effective move in that direction could be made the battle was over and ibrahim bey hearing of the flight of murad hastened back to cairo with baker pasha to take their families and valuables and flee words fail to describe the panic that overwhelmed the people utterly helpless and unaccustomed to think or act for themselves unarmed and without any possible means of defence They saw themselves, deserted by their leaders, at the mercy of a foe from whom, as they thought, they could expect no quarter and no pity, while the military force, in the protection of which they felt such unbounded confidence, was in full flight leaving them to their fate. To any unwarlike and helpless people to be thus suddenly abandoned as a prey to an unknown foe must have seemed an appalling disaster but in this case no circumstance seems to have been wanting that could by any possibility add to the natural terror of the people at the calamity that had so suddenly befallen them. In less than an hour they were plunged from an exulting ecstasy of triumphant anticipation to the crushing despondency of the direst despair. The consternation that had been occasioned by the first news of the defeat of the Mamelukes at Chabris had been largely, not wholly, dissipated by the representations of the Mamelukes, and so loud and blatant were the vauntings of the people at Gabardy, whose Arab blood had but little sympathy for any open expression of the emotions, speaks in the most contemptuous terms of their conduct as wholly unworthy of a people deserving of any esteem. Nor had the Mamelukes, knowing well how little love the people bore them, neglected to contribute all they could to their fear of the French, by attributing to these the lust of rapine and bloodthirsty cruelty and with the news of the defeat and flight of Murad Bey came the tale of the slaughter of the Mamaluks by the riverside, to confirm and augment the worst fears of the people. Later on reports were spread that the French were still busy slaying and destroying all before them, and Ibrahim Bey having ordered the burning of all the boats to prevent the French using them to cross the river. The people, ignorant of this, took the dense columns of smoke arising from the riverside as confirmation of the ruthless ravage the French were said to be wrecking in the dire madness of the despair that seized them, no room was left for any other thoughts than those of self-preservation. And, as the evening closed in, and night fell, the whole population, laden with all they could carry of their goods or wealth, streamed out of the city gates. In the maddened rush for safety, all the claims of blood and friendship were forgotten, and men and women alike, frantic from their fears, fought their way through the fleeing crowds, heedless of parents, wives, brothers, sisters." More than one writer has taken this wild exodus as a text to accuse the people of cowardice. Nothing could be more unjust. They were flying from what to them was a very real and immediate danger, and for the most part on foot from mounted foes. They could see no other choice but fly or die. And in the darkness of the night, the suddenness of the danger, everything helped to urge them onward. Not more sure was Christian that he was fleeing from the city of destruction than were they it was a panic such as seizes a people with all the more uncontrollable force in that it comes as a sudden revulsion from peaceful ease one such as that in our own days in london paris new york and san francisco have turned laughing joyous crowds of pleasure-seekers into mobs of frenzied fugitives when in the days of the dynamite scare in london the crash of the scotland yard explosion was heard in the strand men dashed here and there for safety from the danger that had passed Not long after, I saw a roomful of men hurl themselves headlong down a narrow flight of stairs, fleeing madly from the report of a detonating cigar. I have seen panic seize a thousand emigrants on board a German ship in mid-ocean. Another, the pilgrims for Mecca on an Austrian ship in Bombay harbor. Another, the coolies working on the Hernai Railway in Baluchistan. In these cases, the panic-creating danger was an imaginary one, and yet in real danger these same victims of panic remained calm and collected. It was so, as we shall have occasion to see, with the unhappy Kyrenes. I have spoken already of the fears that the coming of the French had awakened in the hearts of the people. And to the Kyrenes it must have seemed on that most miserable of nights, as if the realization of all the worst of those fears was but a question of a few moments. As the evening had fallen, had they not seen the columns of flame-emblazoned smoke That to them were a proof of the ferocious fury of the foe? Had they not seen the Mameluk chiefs, the bravest of the brave, fleeing for life with breathless haste? With no arms, no leader, nothing but instant flight as the only means of safety they could conceive. Surely a people who had not been panic-stricken in such dire peril would have been a nation of heroes such as the world has never yet seen. But if safety for them lay outside the city, it was not beneath its walls, For there the Bedouin tribesmen, whom Ibrahim Bey had summoned to assist him in the defence of the town, disappointed of the plunder of the French army to which they had looked forward as their only inducement to take part in the contest, with untroubled consciences, turned to the pillage of the unhappy fugitives, as a heaven-sent compensation for their unrealised hopes. Nor were they content with the rich plunder that thus easily fell into their hands, but with wanton savagery, murdered the men, and outraged and slew the women. Thus finding at the hands of their co-religionists, who had been summoned for their defence, no better mercy than the unrestrained cruelty they feared from the French, the unhappy people, or at least so many of them as escaped from the Bedouins, returned to their homes, while the Mameluk chiefs and their followers rode away through the desert, indifferent to the fate of all they had left behind them. Meanwhile, the French army, after a short rest, had advanced along the left bank of the river as far as Giza, a village lying in the line between the city and the pyramids, where bonaparte decided to encamp on their way from imbaba the troops had an opportunity of seeing across the river the town of cairo and the nearly mile-wide stretch of open land lying between studded with the gardens and summer residences of some of the wealthier of the bays elated by their victory and perhaps still more so by the rich loot they had gleaned from the dead bodies of their fallen foes They forgot the fatigues of their long advance, and set themselves to enjoy the rest they so much needed, and the comparatively luxurious fare they expected to compensate them for all the hardships they had endured. Many were the castles that rose in the air as they sat around the bivouac fires, and joked and jested, until, wearied by the labours of the day, nature's soft nurse lulled them to the repose she withheld from their vanquished enemies. But the coming of daylight on the morrow of the battle brought to the horror-whelmed citizens some small gleam of comfort. Fugitives from the west bank of the river told them how the French had settled peacefully down at Giza, and the people coming into the town from Bulac explained the fires that had added so much to the terror of the night. With the calmer mood thus induced came the remembrance of what they had heard of the mildness and humanity of the French at Alexandria and Rosetta. And along the line of their advance— and though the mourners were wailing for their dead, and missing in every street and corner of the town, and their homes had been dismantled or disordered by the flight of the night before, and swept by the thieves of the city, of whatever had been left behind, the people still, as ever, impulsive and hopeful, began with the truest of courage to repair as best they might the havoc that awful night had wrought, and to face the fears and dangers yet before them with a spirit little short of heroism early in the morning the ulema and the few leading men who remained in the town gathered together to consult as to what course it would be best for them to follow they had not much scope for discussion for they recognized from the first that the only question left for them to deal with was how best to conciliate the conquerors eventually it was agreed to send a deputation to the french camp to announce their submission and crave the forbearance and protection of the french general and thus to ascertain as far as possible what they had to hope and what to fear tactless as he is in a moment of emergency when he stays to take thought with himself in calm and serious mood the egyptian not unfrequently shows a wisdom that his critics seldom accord him thus wholly inexperienced as they were in such diplomatic matters they wisely judged that to send as the representatives of the town men who could claim to be neutrals would tend to further the objects of their mission two maghribine sheikhs that is members of the ulema from the barbary states were therefore selected and with many injunctions and entreaties counseled to plead the cause of the town in the most earnest manner they could achieve accompanied by the prayers and blessings of the whole population the deputation not without some small lingering doubt as to the nature of the reception that might await it set out for bonaparte to whom their coming was not so unexpected as they themselves thought it to be received them with the affability he so well knew how to show and which throughout his stay in egypt did much to lessen the friction between the two peoples one of the sheikhs was able to speak French, and had had some experience of French manners. And he, acting as spokesman, discharged his task well and discreetly, and concluded his address by an appeal for clemency. Bonaparte replied that he was the friend of the Egyptians, not their enemy, and that he came to the country to release them from the tyranny of the Mamaluks, and in short gave them a verbal restatement of the proclamation, with many fine flourishes, about the high aims and noble ideals by which the French were actuated. So with many fair words the deputation was dismissed, but with the request that the chief man remaining in the town should wait in person upon the general to hear from him the arrangements he proposed to make. All the town was awaiting the return of the deputation with an eagerness and suppressed excitement that made their short absence seem an age, and great was the relief when they were seen once more approaching the landing, and great the joy with which the news they bore was received throughout the town. No time was lost in responding to Bonaparte's invitation, And taking with them the keys of the city, all the chief men set out for Guise, anxious at once to gain renewed assurance of the fair hopes awakened by the report of the deputation, and at the same time give the French general a proof of their readiness to comply with his desires. Bonaparte was, if possible, more gracious than before, and again dilated upon the purely friendly and beneficent intentions of the invasion, of his sympathy for Islam, and his desire to make his coming the opening of a new era in the history of the people were thenceforth to enjoy all the blessings that the establishment of the Republic had already conferred upon the French themselves. He was listened to with the emotionless stolidity of the Oriental, but not without occasional exclamations of approval. Yet as he went on, his listeners were moved by steadily growing wonder at the distrust of a speech so utterly unlike anything they had ever heard of, or conceived as possible, from the lips of a conqueror. They had, indeed, read the proclamation, copies of which had been sent to Cairo, but it had failed with them, as with the people of Alexandria, to convey any intelligible conception of the ideas it was intended to impart, and the little corporal's discourse reaching them through the mouth of an interpreter helped them nothing at all to grasp the real aims and object of the French. All that they could comprehend was that they were expected to accept the French as their rulers, that their lives, property, and religion would be respected, and that the French were as eager to reward their friends as to annihilate their enemies but loyalty to the french and loyalty to the sultan were so mixed up in the proclamation and in bonaparte's speech and were in themselves in the eyes of the egyptians two such absolutely irreconcilable things that the sheikhs were completely bewildered by the attempt to solve the enigma thus presented to them so they were content for the moment to accept the french assurance that they were to be treated as friends and for the rest god was great and they put their trust in him but if the speech of bonaparte thus made upon them but little impression of a definite kind The courtesy shown them by all the French with whom they came in contact was not so barren. Accustomed as they were to the hollow insincerity of court life under the bays, the sheiks could not fail to appreciate the genuine character of the politeness with which they had been received by the French. It was due rather to this appreciation than to the plausible promises of the general, that they returned to the city somewhat, though not wholly, reassured as to the immediate future. On their part, the French were sufficiently pleased with the docility of the deputation, and from the dignity, self-possession, and courtesy of its members augured well for the realization of their own views. As a consequence of the good understanding thus arrived at, boats were sent over to Guizet, to convey the advance guard of the army to Cairo, and returning after sunset with a detachment of the troops, escorted through the town by some of the leading men, and, lighted by torches, led to the citadel, of which it took possession. The following day the bulk of the army was moved across the river, and historians record, with some disgust, the revolting glee with which the soldiers fished out of the stream the hideously swollen and disfigured bodies of the Mamaluks, and of the horses that had perished in the attempted escape from Embaba, that they might despoil the miserable carcasses of whatever remained upon them of value. We must remember, however, that in those days the armies of Europe were recruited from classes that had scarcely as yet been touched by the advance of civilization. Nowhere was human life then regarded with the sanctity a more enlightened age accords it. To his superiors, the soldier was of no value but as food for powder, and it is not surprising that the little value placed upon his life by others should lead him to look upon the lives of his foes at a still lower rate, and deprive him of all feelings of humanity towards them. As to the people of the town, released from the fears that had plunged them in such disastrous despair, and as responsive as always to the impulse of the moment and the play of their surroundings, these received the French, if not with the open arms that Bonaparte had looked for, at least with a toleration and absence of hostile demonstrations, that speedily put the French at their ease. Everything thus bidding fair for the realization of all his hopes, Bonaparte himself crossed over the river on the 27th of July, and took up his quarters in a new palace that Elfi Bey, one of the wealthiest of the Mameluk chiefs, had only just completed, and furnished in a magnificent manner, on the bank of the small lake to the northwest of the city the site of which is now occupied by the garden and buildings of the izbekia quarter of the new town End of chapter seven after the battle recording by graham macmillan san diego california